0: Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, take your Bibles this morning and open to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. I want us to look this morning at a contrast of two lives, Judah and Joseph. While you're turning there, I'll introduce the message today. You know, one of the most disheartening events of this whole season that we find ourselves in has come most recently for me. And it's in the most recent, what I would call the implosion of one of the most brilliant and greatest Christian apologists of this generation as over the last several weeks, the secret double life that he had been living for so long became full knowledge, public knowledge, and the worldwide ministry is now crumbled and will likely close and not exist again. All of that to be said, he reduced a lifetime of ministry to nothing more than sin's inevitable end. Abuse, lies, deception, destruction. And it reminds us that you can have all the right answers and still get undone by the one iniquity that you neglected to deal with in your heart. You see, what you love most will define you last, whether in this life or in death. And what I want us to see today is that Jesus blesses the one who walks in integrity with steadfast love and favor, but the crooked will fall. I confess to you today, today's message is a heavy message. It's a heavy message for all of us. There are none of us that are outside of the scope of what we are discussing today. My encouragement to you today is the hope that we have in Christ should cause all of us to sit under the word of Christ that comes to us. And the work of God's Holy Spirit within us. To let him search us and to try us and to see if there be any way in us. And then to lead us as he restores the spirit of life within us and leads us into the righteousness he has for us. Genesis chapter 38 verses 1 through 6. I want to read these verses as we begin today. And we'll begin to be introduced to this man named Judah. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in when she bore when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Let's pause there for a moment. Due to time, I'm not going to read the entirety of the passage, but we'll walk through it as we look today. Genesis chapter 38 introduces us to the fourth and the youngest son of Leah, Jacob's first wife. And as we will see with the youngest son, what we learn of him will be no better than what we learned of his older brothers. Reuben, who internally created a great immorality within his own family, and also Simeon and Levi, who just a couple of chapters ago we saw destroyed a whole city out of vengeance and taking matters into their own hands. And here we are to Leah's fourth son, Judah, and it tells us he went down from his brothers and turned aside to take a wife. And that wife bore to him three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. In time, he went and took a wife for his firstborn son, and her name was Tamar. But when he gave Tamar to his son, it tells us that Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And so, Judah goes into his second son Onan and tells him, go and take your brother's wife as was the custom of that day and have children so we'll have someone to carry on the name. But it tells us that as with Ur, Onan was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death as well. And then Judah tells Tamar to wait until his youngest son reaches the age of marriage and then... He will give her to him. And Tamar is left in the house to remain a widow. In time, it tells us that Judah's wife dies. And after his time of grieving ends, he goes down to a city named Timnah because it's sheep shearing season. Say that quickly three times. Be careful. You need to understand something about sheep shearing season. It wasn't just about the shearing of sheep. It was a season of cultic activity that was highly sexualized. It was worship of the Canaanite gods and participation in the Canaanite cults. And because of this, what transpired, though it was the celebration, it was kind of like harvest season for sheep herders. But in the midst of this, many people had come into the city. There was great celebration. Money seemed to be aplenty because they had just gotten paid for the shearing of their sheep. And you can imagine all that was taking place in the midst of the cultic activity. What do we know about this? We know this was a place that God had forbid his children to be. Because they were not to intermarry and they were not to participate with the Canaanites in their cultic practices. And yet that's where we find Judah. Well, Tamar learns that he has gone. And so she's grown hopeless that she'll ever have a child by Sheila, uh, Shayla. Sheila, Sheila. I'll get it right eventually. And takes matters into her own, own hands. She changes out of her widow's clothes, puts on a veil, and goes down to the road that goes to Timnah, knowing a lot of people will be there, and likely she can find someone there to have a child by. Now Tamar's actions may be morally questionable. And there's room for argument in that. But here's how we should read the scriptures in this light. The text provides us no commentary on the rightness or wrongness of her actions. And therefore, we should accept the narrative of the story as it is presented to us. Because the point of the story is not Tamar and her actions. Okay? And so we continue Judah Begins to return home and sees her, but does not know who she is. But what verse 16 says is that he turned to her at the roadside and propositions her. He has no way to pay at the moment, but he offers her a goat. She agrees. But he tells her, since I can't pay you right now, I'll leave a pledge. What should I leave you? And she says to him, leave me your signet, your cord, and your staff. Now, if you want to put these in modern terms, the modern equivalent would be a man leaving his wallet, his keys, and his smartphone. His life got left into the hands of a stranger. You, you see how deeply Judah is taking himself here. He agrees, he goes into her, and she conceives, but unbeknown to him. Later, when he sends payment by his servant and asks him to retrieve his personal items, the servant goes but cannot find her because Tamar has gone, returned home, and put back on her grieving widow clothes. When the servant comes home and tells Judah, I couldn't find her, Judah says this, and I quote, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. And so Judah confirms with his servant, That he tried to make the payment, but he couldn't find her. Judah was more concerned about the integrity of his payment for his act of immorality than he was letting anybody know it. Because he said, just let her have the stuff. Otherwise, somebody's going to find out. We'll be mocked. So he he was happy to let the matter go to avoid public shame. And how convenient it would be if only our sinful indiscretions would disappear that easily as well three months later judah is told that tamar is pregnant and he is outraged over her immorality how dare she is what he is thinking as a matter of fact he is so outraged that he orders her to be brought out and burned for the evil atrocity she has committed and what we understand about the the, the law of that day while death was a fit punishment for the offense of immorality and adultery, burning as the form of death was exceptionally cruel and and had no bearing upon the law being executed correctly. So we see that his outrage leads him to incur a much harsher punishment on her wrongdoing than should have been done even by the law of the land. Before she goes, she sends back his personal items and says, take these to Judah and tell him these belong to the father of my child. Well, you can imagine, he was humiliated. In that moment, he admits his guilt and this is what he confesses, that he had actually withheld his youngest son from her and forced her into the hopelessness that caused her to do what she did. You see, Judah's brokenness remains on him. That's what the text leads us to understand about him. Because it says he did not know her again. And Judah's attempt to hide his own shame now had left him exposed in public humiliation. The very thing he tried to avoid in covering it up. Chapter 38 ends with Tamar birthing twins named Perez and Zerah. Actually, Zerah was to be first and Perez second. This is the, uh, the second of only two sets of twins that are born in the scriptures. But it echoes to us the first set that we've already seen, Judah's father, Jacob. It uses the same words for Jacob and Esau in their birth of twins. And it echoes for us that we should remember the continuation of the generational strife and the succession of the generational sins that are continuing through the family. Why? Because those responsible for the family, namely the sons of Jacob, are not leading their family in godliness. And it tells us that Judah was undone by his sin and his shame and his legacy Now joining his older brothers, Simeon, Levi, and Reuben, was one of hurt and harm on his whole family. And then we come back to Genesis 39, where we are reintroduced to who we've been walking with the last several chapters, Joseph and his narrative. Allow me, if you will, to read the first six verses as we catch up with Joseph and where he is in his own life. Genesis 39, verse 1. And so chapter 39, we return to Joseph and it tells us this. He had been brought down to Egypt and bought as a slave from the Ishmaelites. Now he had an Egyptian master. And you see the Lord's blessing that was on Joseph at the time made an impression upon all who were encountering Joseph in his life. It says such that he was put in charge of the whole house. This is unheard of for a slave. And yet Joseph quickly ascended to that. But Joseph's master was not the only one who noticed him. His master's wife noticed him as well. And this time it is her that comes to him. Because when she could resist no longer, she demanded that Joseph lie with her. And the way that the text introduces this to us, it's not a single occurrence, but it has been building now, and it is a regular demand that she is making to him. That's what it will tell us. But Joseph, when she finally demands it of him, recognizes this as an offense, first of all against his master, and then against his God. And he says, I won't do it, it'll be wrong. In human terms, it will be wrong in divine terms. But that was not a compelling reason for her. She was unbothered by that. And the text says, day after day, she continued to make this demand of Joseph. And so one day, she snuck up on him and grabbed his garment and again stated her demand, lie with me. Joseph immediately uh, uh, just left his garment in her grasp and fled and ran away. Well, here she is holding Joseph's garment. And one or two things is going to happen here. Either she's guilty or he's guilty. So she immediately screams out, calls the guard in, and tells him how Joseph tried to seduce her. And that God immediately takes her to his boss, the king, his, or her husband rather, and she recounts again the accusation to her husband. Well, naturally, he was greatly angered, and, and he immediately had Joseph thrown back into jail. But back into jail, we are reminded, verse 20 and following of chapter 39, we're reminded of God's blessing on Joseph. Verses 21 to 23 echo, The steadfast love and the favor of God that was on him at first remains on him. And again, in time, he is raised back up to lead the whole jail so that the head jailer worried about nothing. This is what the scripture says. But the Lord was with Joseph. And he showed him his steadfast love and gave him favor. That word for favor in the Old Testament is a word you can understand of as God's grace. God's grace. You see, beyond only descriptive, these verses define Joseph's life. You want to know who this man was? This is who he was. He had the favor and the love of God marking his life such that it made an impression on everyone who encountered him. No matter who he was, or excuse me, no matter where he was, no matter who he was with or what he was doing, Joseph lived with God's blessing on his life because he was faithful to the Lord. Now, when we look at these two chapters together, the first thing we have to ask is this, where did chapter 38 come from? (laughs) I mean, we were walking with Joseph for the last couple of chapters, and, and we had begun to see that he was the central character. At the beginning of Genesis 37, he becomes the central character that we will follow through the remainder of the book. And then when we get to chapter 38, all of a sudden, Joseph's not even in the picture. We're talking about Judah again. We've reversed back, and we're looking at a different person. But that's the exact value of these chapters. When we see the two contrast, or the two lives deeply contrast between Judah and Joseph, a life of selfish rationale and sinful indiscretions is set against the life of God's steadfast love and favor. And through the midst of it all, we see the sovereignty of God unrelenting and working in all things. I want to contrast these two lives for us for a moment. And I want us to see in the contrast what I believe God is saying and speaking to us today to respond to him with. Judah reveals a life that is absent of integrity. Like his father and like his older brothers, he's a man that wanted to make his own way. And that's why it says he went down away from his brothers and he turned aside to take a wife. This directional language is not inconsequential, friends. It's important. It's not about the direction. It's about the way Judah was living. And he could not control nor satisfy his selfish desires. And so we see in two pivotal moments, he turns aside. He, first of all, walks down away from his brothers and goes to a place that God had commanded his people not to go to, to take a wife. And that's what he did. He turned aside from the command of God and took the wife he wanted instead of the kind of wife God had for him. And then later it tells us he turned aside again, and we've already looked at him taking Tamar. The same word for turning aside is used in verse 1 and verse 16 to describe this action of Judah. It's the sense of changing orientation or changing direction. In other words, he had the favor of God because after all, he was the son of Jacob who was the the living promise of God leader as his father. But the picture that we're getting of Judah is one of directional and orientational shifting continually. It is one of Judah living like a drunk driver, swerving recklessly after pleasure after pleasure, but never finding it. And the only thing that Judah went straight into was his next sinful desire. And because Judah walked selfishly and sinfully, it was everything and anything and everyone that became his master. What did we see? He had to control every situation so he knew the outcome of it. He had to manage every conversation. Remember what he said to his servant? You saw here, I tried to pay her, but she wasn't there. It's not my fault, it's on her, not me. Or it's on you because you couldn't find her. Right? Don't miss those little phrases at the end. He had to blame somebody else. Because to him that was the only way to get rid of his own guilt. And what we see is that Judah lived a pattern of turning aside from what he knew was right. And let's be honest. Let's just be real about this for a moment. In so many ways, we see the big ones But in so many ways, I guarantee you, just as we do, Judah convinced himself, it's really not that big of a deal here. It's it's the small, inconsequential matters, right? But those things became big matters and led him to self-destruction. Hear me, friends. In Judah's life, we see this. The absence of integrity always inebriates to forsake biblical teaching gospel doctrine, and spirit-led conviction for sinful actions. You say, why do I use the word drunkenness and inebriation? Because the New Testament uses it. Because drunkenness and inebriation tells us something outside of us is controlling us. And that's what sin does. We are slaves to sin outside of Christ. And as long as we remain outside of Christ, we will always remain a slave to our sinful desires. But we will never find the satisfaction nor the pleasure that they promise to us. Now Joseph, on the other hand, reveals a life of integrity. Verse 2 of chapter 39 tells us, The Lord was with Joseph. His life was marked by steadfast love and favor. And even though, listen to this mirrored language, even though Joseph was brought down and bought... Right? So, where Judah walked down and turned away of his own volition, Joseph was brought down and bought circumstantially it was imposed upon him. And multiple times we see this repeated as he's raised up and put back down, raised up and put back down. His circumstances occurred many times in his life, but he never turned away from the Lord in his personal decisions and his loyalties. He always recognized the wrong that it would cause against other people and against God. You see, when Joseph held that his life was not his own, that he was bought with a price greater than the slave trade price that he had been subjected to, he knew that his life was not for his decision, but for the one who was ultimately the master of his life, God. His whole life was God's servant. Therefore, because he was God's servant, he would never be mastered by anything or anyone. And in Joseph's life, we see that integrity leads one to walk straight by this one guiding conviction that what is right before God is good for others and for all people. It is good for life and for all people. You see, Genesis 38, we look back, has a conspicuous absence in it. There is no mention of God's intervention in the life of Judah. And I mean, goodness, chapter 39 is defined by God's intervention on the life of Joseph, is it not? And this is important. Why? Because the lineage that we are introduced to in chapter 38 will actually become the lineage through which King David will come as a grandson of Perez and through whom another king will come, Jesus Christ Some might ask, you know, if God is sovereign in Judah's family, and he's still sovereign today, why should I have to worry about how we live? Why does it matter? If God's going to do what God's going to do, why does it matter what I do? That's a good question. Except for we often ask it without the intent of listening to what the Scripture would teach us about it. And the answer is in the contrast that we see here. Because Judah harmed and hurt everyone by his sin. He perpetuated what his brothers, what his father, what his grandfather had already perpetuated. A carnage of bad relationships, of bad decisions and bad actions. And condemning of anyone that was even so much as associated with him. But Joseph, Joseph blessed everyone, both those directly connected to him and indirectly associated with him. It tells us the whole house of Potiphar was blessed because of Joseph's work and presence in it. Judah lived a life of cursed brokenness, sinfulness. Joseph, a life of blessing through which all were blessed. You see, friends, God will accomplish His will. But we must remember He is not indebted to favor anyone who walks outside His word. God will accomplish His will. He is sovereign. But He is not indebted to favor anyone who walks outside of His word not even those he intends to use. Christians are called to live as a blessing to others by the steadfast love and the favor that God has bestowed on our life. This is what it means to live as a Christian. There are no small number of definitions of what people would claim to be defining of the Christian life in our day and time. And to our demise, too often, that definition is something considerably opposite from what Scripture actually teaches about it. But Christians are people who are called to live under the steadfast love and favor of God such that their life is a blessing to all that encounter them and even all who are indirectly affected by them. How do we do this? From Joseph's life, we see we live a life of integrity. It's the only way. There is no other way. The actions of life reinforce and train our beliefs and our convictions by how we live. The very pattern of our living is teaching us and training us in the very things that we believe. Whether we're living in alignment with them or counter to them. You can say what you believe all day long and give lip service to it. But until your walk aligns with your talk. It means nothing it means nothing and when little indiscretions are tolerated in our behavior it is eroding the foundation of our doctrinal convictions to walk under the lordship of Jesus Christ the more and the longer you tolerate to practice indiscretions and sin in your life the more damage they are doing to you listen to me If you are not a Christian, I'm not talking to you at this moment. You can learn from this, but I'm speaking immediately to those who claim the name of Jesus Christ. Hidden sins will be found out. Do not take these things lightly and do not let the small darknesses hidden deep in the recesses of your heart cause you to believe they're just for you. God sees you. And yet he still loves you. And it's those little indiscretions he wants to wipe completely clean from you. And that's what he's offering to you today. Never forget, the ethical conduct of your life matters because it both reveals and determines the doctrines and the convictions that define your faith you say well gosh pastor why would we talk about doctrines in this statement isn't that something we ought to leave reserved for like something the church teaches no friends doctrine is just simply a word that means a set of teachings and every every behavior of your life is an outward expression of an inward conviction that is held because of a doctrine of teaching that you hold to So when you see the sinful acts of your life, you can know there is some belief, some doctrine of teaching that you are holding to, that you believe to be more true than what God has said. And I tell you, it is that wrong teaching that the gospel of Jesus Christ wants to open up, wipe away, and replace with the truth of His word and the light of what He wants to do in you. When you walk with the Lord, he leads in his steadfast love and favor. When you turn away, you become prey to every temptation along the way. For the person who walks in the integrity of heart, God's steadfast love and favor guards their life. For the person who walks according to their own ways, only is it a matter of time before they will suddenly fall. When we repent, we turn from sin and we turn from self to obey God's commands we cast off if you will the yoke of sin and we take on the yoke of christ to walk in the integrity of his freedom that's why jesus teaches in matthew chapter 11 verse 28 he says come all who are weary and heavy laden come to me and find rest for your souls And in verse 29 he says take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see that's what salvation is all about. It's about throwing off the heaviness of sin that keeps confusing you. That keeps clouding your heart and mind and keeps leading you to a place of destruction. The, The guilt and the shame is just it's so heavy and it's so hard. And Jesus is saying, you're never going to get rid of that on your own. You will either be a slave to Jesus or you'll be a slave to yourself in sin. That's what Judas is teaching us here, friends. I mean, Judah was not an ignorant man. He was not incapable of things. He accomplished a lot in his life. The problem was he believed it to be more than it could really do for him. How many of us are being deceived by that very idea of our own lives? Jesus says, if you'll trust in me and repent of your sin, I'll take that yoke off of you and I'll put my yoke on you. And I'm going to tell you what, Joseph was a far happier man as a slave to Potiphar. As a slave to Potiphar's slave than Judah ever was walking around a quote-unquote free man making himself. You see that? I'm praying that the Spirit of God will give us eyes to see that for each one of us today. Paul says of this yokel exchange, if you will, taking off the yoke of sin and putting on the yoke of Christ, seeing your life not as your own, but having been bought with a price by the blood of Jesus Christ, that now you are a slave to Christ and the joy that it brings. Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Every time that temptation takes hold of you and wants to grab you and demand you to come into it, leave the garment and run for your life. You know, that's the best counsel Scripture gives in the face of temptation. Don't try to outthink it, don't try to outmaneuver it, just get away from it. Run, run. Every time we give in, we take off the yoke of Christ. That is light. And we dump that yoke of sin back on our neck that's heavy, cumbersome. Friends, I I encourage you today to walk in the integrity that only Christ can bring. And integrity in Christ, it brings freedom to our life by three blessings. Three blessings. I want to share these with you briefly, then we'll be finished. The first blessing of walking in the integrity of Christ is the blessing of security. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his way crooked will be found out. That word for securely there carries the sense of being set free from, weir, uh, from fear, from worry, and from anxiety. Maybe you recognize these words that are so prevalent in our world and vernacular and vocabulary today. Integrity releases us from fear's lies over us, to us, and in us. You say, what kind of lies? Well, I can tell you these lies are always preempted with one of, set of these three words. But what about? But what if? What might be? You ever find yourself playing these games? I can tell you at a young age and early on in our marriage, Kristen and I had moved to Fort Worth, Texas, and we found ourselves... Having conversations about stuff we didn't know about in life. And it always started with one of those three sets of, or one of those sets of words of three. But what if, but what about, but what might be? And, and it, it never led us to a productive place. It always led us to wonder: is God in control? Can we handle this? Are we going to make it? The unlimited mental games we play in life. compound as we give them bandwidth within us but we need not worry over our reputation because as we focus on Christ he builds to yea even transform our character you see that's the thing about Joseph Joseph said I don't know about what if I don't know what about I don't even know what might be as we saw in Genesis 37 Joseph didn't understand all the details of his situation or circumstance He didn't know why he was being sold into slavery. He just knew he had 11 brothers or 10 brothers at the time that betrayed him. He didn't know why this woman wouldn't leave him alone and let him do his job. But all he knew was when she said something to her husband, he got thrown back into prison. But it didn't matter because he was led by one guiding conviction. What God has said is right will be right for me regardless of what the world says about it. You see, integrity, friends, is the security of our life as we walk with Jesus. The second blessing of integrity is guidance. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 3 says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. That word for guides just simply means to be in charge of. To be in charge of. That's interesting when you reflect upon the lack of in-chargeness of Judah, Who was turned aside by every whim of selfish pleasure and desire. Who was not even controlling his own life, though he thought he had it in control. Because he had to manage every conversation. He had to control every situation. He had to be in the light to make sure that he could handle what was in front of him. When we walk in integrity... What one knows about Jesus from the revelation of him in his word is that which controls our living for Jesus by faith and obedience to his word. You don't have to know how everything's going to work out tonight, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, or the rest of your life. All you need concern yourself with is the one who's already gone before you and who has promised because he has overcome. But friends, the absence of integrity It guides life too. Like a drunk driver steers a car that we've already seen in Judah's life. Wherever the next whim leads and it'll always end in self-destruction. Integrity guides all of life by leading one's conduct in accordance with God's command. The third blessing is the blessing of deliverance. Proverbs 28 verse 18 says, Whoever walks in integrity will be delivered. But he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. You see that word for delivered means to be saved from ruin. Saved from ruin. To be victorious. And what an incredible promise especially with the contrast of Judah and Joseph in their life. One who thought he had managed everything to be victorious over the situation but was suddenly undone and the other didn't have control of anything. And yet he wasn't bound by any of it. Integrity delivers one to a life of freedom by delivering from the grasp and the harm of evil. Friends, if you want to know God's steadfast love and favor, you must trust Christ and walk in the integrity of His Word with Him. I'm going to close with a helpful outline of actions to help you walk straight in integrity with Jesus Christ. It's from Psalm chapter 101, verses 1-4. through 4. David says these words, I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. If you'll just take a few moments later today, tomorrow morning, and maybe each morning the next week, and for however long the Spirit of God guides you to, focus on the verbs of each phrase and ask God to place the steadfast love and favor of His loving kindness upon you. And by His grace to lead you in these ways, you will find that he places within you as well the integrity of heart to walk according to the light and the truth of his word. A life of integrity resonates and ponders God's ways and his goodness in Jesus Christ to walk in integrity. Then it commits to it and flees from everything that doesn't align with it. Jesus blesses the one who walks in integrity with steadfast love and favor. But the crooked will fall. Let's pray.